All right, thank you so much. If you would turn to Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4. This is probably a story that's very familiar to most of you, if not all of you. It's a great story in so many ways. There's so many things in this story that God is illustrating for us, and hopefully we'll be able to touch on um, some very important things this morning. Let me just encourage you, as we get into this passage, to think about your own personal circumstances. Think about what you're going through right now, what you've been going through. Um, Think about what our country is going through. And my encouragement is from this passage is basically that we need to embrace and be reminded of and apply in fresh new ways the reality that heaven rules, which means that hell doesn't rule, and it means that Hitler doesn't rule. Even if we have a Hitler or not, even if things seem to be going to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, in certain ways and maybe not in other ways, but however we might feel about what things are happening in our lives and whatever we might feel about people in in authority over us on various levels, um, It's important to know that ultimately heaven rules and to be comforted by that and to be strengthened by that, to trust God and to love in our circumstances. So let me read for us uh, Daniel chapter four. Daniel is a book of history. The first six chapters are history, so to speak, Um, but they're history, true history that teaches us things. And then the last six chapters are prophecy, which we'll get into very, very soon. But Daniel 4, verse 1 uh, says this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, The Chaldeans and the diviners came in, and I related to the the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, And no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the bees flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. 
in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while at his thoughts, as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and honor the king of heaven. 
for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is the word of God. It's a long chapter, but it's a fascinating chapter. But it's one of those chapters that repeats things over and over again, lest you miss it. And so what we have in this chapter is we have in the first three verses, um, Nebuchadnezzar basically introducing what's going to follow by saying, I want to give some testimony to what God has done in my life. And then verses 4 through 18 talks about the fact that he had a dream. And then verses 19 through 27 talk about how Daniel explains to him the meaning or the interpretation of the dream. And then verses 28 through 33 is the fulfillment of the dream. And then at the end, we have Nebuchadnezzar uh, testifying to the result of what God did in his life by fulfilling that dream. Now, the dream is about a huge tree that fills the earth that can be seen from every angle on earth. And it's a tree in which uh, all the animals uh, are underneath it um, receiving shade. All the birds are in um, the tree branches and all the living things are receiving food. And it's a dream that goes from this picture of a tree to the picture of a cow. Because the tree is chopped down, all and what is left is the stump, and the tree becomes a cow, becomes an animal that eats grass. And we find out that the dream that includes the tree and the cow both represent King Nebuchadnezzar. He goes from being the tree in the dream to being the cow in the dream. And it's because he needs to learn a lesson. And that lesson is repeated over and over and over again that the Most High is the ruler over mankind. The Most High is the ruler over mankind. It's a lesson that he needs to learn. And so there are four things that I want us to take away from this this morning with the time that we have left. Number one, God rules. Number two, God loves. Number three, God brings suffering. And number four, God saves. These are all truths that we know, uh, but we want to see how it's talked about in this passage, and we pray that God will apply it to our own lives and our own circumstances and our own struggles as we think about these truths from this passage this morning. And so the first point is this passage highlights over and over and over again that God rules. God is in charge. In verse 3, it says his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. In verse 17, it says, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. It says the same thing in verse 25. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. In verse 26, it says, Heaven rules. Um, Obviously, in verses 30 through 32, um, Nebuchadnezzar isn't so sure about that because he looks at Babylon and thinks, You know what? I think Babylon is the way it is because of my power And because of my glory, because I'm so great, because I'm ruling, Babylon is what it is. And yet, uh, again, in verse 32, the lesson he has to learn is the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And it talks in verses 34 through 37 that God does according to his will. No one can ward off his hand. You know what that means? That's kind of like... um, You've got a cookie jar in the kitchen and your child comes in and goes like this toward the cookie jar and you go like that and they stop and they pull back their hand. And sometimes we think we can do the same thing with God. God don't do that. No one can ward off God's hand. No one can prevent God's hand from doing what he's going to do. And so God is, as it says in verse 37, the king. He's the king of heaven the king of heaven. So there's a lot that we want to uh, pull out of that, but the first thing I want to do is just apply it to the issue of government because Nebuchadnezzar was a king and he was in charge of the government. And obviously the picture of a tree and all living things getting what they need from the tree could give the illusion that it was the tree that was God. 
It was the tree that was feeding people. It was the tree that was providing for people. Uh, you may have seen some people commenting on the the, um, the I-95 situation where people were caught in this uh, terrible cold and in this um, traffic, you know, this um, just cars lined up and not able to get to their destinations, but ha- having to stay in their car uh, for a long time. And a lot of people were commenting that, um, you know, the government should do something to rescue these people. Then there are other people who are commenting saying, why is the government always the one that needs to rescue us? And it raises a good question because there's no doubt, regardless of what you think about that situation and and what the government should have done in that situation, there's no doubt that in our country, for most people, when there's something going wrong, when there's a need, uh, we've been trained to look to the government. And we see the government as the tree with the fruit that we need. Uh, And that's what's going on here is that Uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw himself as that, and he saw his government as that, and he needed to learn that that was not true. It might appear that way. It might appear to us that what keeps us going is, is the food we eat. That's an illusion. Do you know that? It's not the food we eat that keeps us going. The Bible says we take our breath because God says breathe. And we keep our health because God says, be healthy. Uh, Obviously, he uses food and all those things, but um, that's not what keeps us alive. Uh, That's why Jesus could tell Satan, I'm not going to turn those stones into bread. We're to live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What word is that? When God says live, he tells us what to do. He leads us what to do, and we trust him for life. So ultimately, um, the way this applies is initially in the big picture in our country is to remember that God rules through human rulers, whether good or bad. So whether you like President Biden or not, whether you like President Trump or not, whether you like President Obama or not, God was ruling and is ruling through them. That's just the way it is. doesn't mean we shouldn't oppose things that our government does that are wrong, but we still have to acknowledge the Bible teaches that God is ultimately ruling, even through bad rulers. Nebuchadnezzar was cruel. Nebuchadnezzar was ruthless. Nebuchadnezzar was not a godly man. He was not a godly ruler. And yet God tells Nebuchadnezzar, as well as all living people, I'm ruling through Nebuchadnezzar. Doesn't mean that he agrees with what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, but he is ruling through and ruling over all that is taking place there. In fact, um, the Bible says, it says, uh, God uh, bestows leadership and rule on whomever he wishes, which means no matter what the process, the election process is, whether it's legitimate or not, Whether it's flawed or not, God is the one who chooses who's going to be in power. So we may not like the fact that the last election happened and turned out the way it did, and we might even question whether or not uh, there was some funny business going on in the election. But the reality is President Biden is in power because God chose to put him in power. That's the ultimate answer to the question. And so we have to understand that for our comfort, for our encouragement, lest we think things are really spinning out of control because they're really not. Um, Some people think if they get put into a position of power on any level that it says something about how great they are. And that's the illusion of power and authority. Uh, God says he sets over uh, over at the lowliest, lowliest of men. What does he mean by that? He means that God puts into power people uh, that he chooses to put into power based on whatever is his purpose and whatever good thing he intends to do, but it's not because they're great. It's because he's great. He puts into positions of power whoever he sees fit because of his greatness, because of his great purposes, his great promises, not because that person is great and deserves to be elevated or even is adequate for that position. 
And so we have to remember that. We have to remember that that's the reality of what's going on here because we're prone to see the tree. We're, we're prone to be like Nebuchadnezzar thinking, well, that, they're in that position of power because they're something. Well, they're there because God is something, not because they are something or we're something if we happen to be in a position of power one way or the other. We're tempted, just like Nebuchadnezzar, um, to credit what we do to our own power and therefore credit to our own glory. So if I can achieve certain things, then it must be something that shows my own power and therefore it, it exalts my glory. And that's why people pursue achievements of various kinds. It's ultimately that they might attribute it to their own power and attribute it to their own glory. And God says, uh, whatever we achieve, it's by his grace. It's by his power, not ours. And so we have to be careful of being like Nebuchadnezzar in seeing that what we achieve is somehow for our power and for our glory. God rules, as I mentioned, according to his will. And what what is his will? It's whatever is right and wise and good. And he never varies from that. Whatever is right and wise and good is how God rules. And therefore, at the end of the day, that's why Nebuchadnezzar could say his ways are just. He never does anything wrong, even in my situation. And as I said before, nobody can slap God's hand and say, you can't do that, don't do that. God's hand is at work in all of our lives. God's hand is at work in our country. And we can't ward it off. We can't say, God, you can't do that. Even those who don't believe in God can't ward off God's hand. Even those who oppose God cannot ward off God's hand. God will do what is right and wise and good. And nothing or no one can prevent that, which means... No one can prevent him from fulfilling his good purposes or prevent him from fulfilling his good promises. So he's promised all of us great and wonderful things. And it doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter what happens in these legislative um, races. It doesn't matter what happens the next time we vote for a president. Uh, God is still going to be fulfilling his purposes. He's still going to be fulfilling his promises. And we need not be afraid. And that has to be the distinction between us and those who aren't believers. Because those who aren't believers are putting everything into these next elections. If we don't get it right this next time, everything's going to fall apart. If we don't vote for the right president the next time, then everything is going to be lost. And yet nothing will be lost. God will lose nothing. He will save every person he's going to save. He will fulfill every good purpose. He will fulfill every good promise. And so we need to fight the temptation with these kinds of scriptures to think that government is God because that's exactly what government wants you to think. If government is God, then you just do whatever the government says because you're depending on government. And that could mean compromising your faith. That could mean being silent when you need to speak. That could mean doing things that God doesn't want you to do. If government is God, then God's not God. And we have to fight that temptation. Well, there's so much more to be said about that, but let me just kind of uh, shift this a little bit and think about it from a little different perspective. Um, Obviously, one of the things that's really challenging for us is it's one thing to say God's in charge, God rules, and yet... Sometimes it just doesn't appear like he's active. It doesn't appear like he's doing things. And um, um, there are those who have wondered about um, why the Hobbit books and the Lord of the Ring books have been uh, so popular. And from a Christian perspective, there are those who would say, you know, if you read those books, there isn't this overt reference to God in the books. It's sort of like the book of Esther. If you've ever read the book of Esther, you've probably noticed that there aren't references to God in the book. And this is a book in the Bible. You don't see references to God. 
But there's a story about how God saves his people and protects his people and provides for his people. And so what's the point of the book of Esther? That God is at work even if you can't see it. The, The providence of God is actually at work. And the same thing has been said about uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings story because um, Tolkien would say that he was a Christian who wrote from a Christian perspective, that his stories were fundamentally religious and essentially Christian. And therefore, you see different conversations going on in the book. For instance, it's a conversation between Bilbo and Frodo in which, or excuse me, actually uh, Frodo and Gandalf were Frodo says, you know, I, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. And Gandalf said, pity? Uh, it's pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. And he makes a comment in that discussion where he says, Gandalf says, even the very wise cannot see all ends. What does he mean by that? No matter how wise we think we are, no matter how intelligent we think we are, no matter how much we think we understand what's going on and why, We don't know all the various purposes that are being accomplished, all the various ends that are being accomplished through various things that are taking place. Frodo said, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. How many of us have ever said that about all kinds of things in our lives? I wish this had never happened. And um, Gandalf says a lot of things in response to that, but he says at one point, there are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides that of evil. We tend to be overwhelmed with the workings of evil that we see. And he says, there are other forces at work. He says, Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it. And he says, and that is an encouraging thought, that what is happening was meant to happen. What is happening to you, Frodo, was meant to happen, which means there's a purpose in it all. There's a good purpose in it all. There there are forces beyond the evil forces that we see. And that is exactly what God wants uh, Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge. Because ultimately, that's an important part of our giving God the glory that he deserves. Because if we can't see God, we can't see his physical hand. He doesn't have a physical hand. The Lord Jesus does. Uh, But we can't see his hand but we need to see that his hand is involved in everything. And we need to give him the glory for what takes place in our lives. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do we we acknowledge that? That whatever good is in our lives, whatever we achieve, it's because God has enabled us. He gets the glory for it. Another aspect of that is Psalm 4610, where God says, cease striving and know that I am God. See striving. It's another way of saying, uh, just relax. I'm in charge. You don't have to be in charge. You don't have to control things because I've already got it under control. Things aren't spinning out of uh, place. Things aren't unraveling. Things are unfolding. They're unfolding just as I have purposed them to unfold. Um, Spurgeon talks about the fact that uh, Christians in going through various life storms uh, could picture it in, in a way of um, a horse being ridden. He says this, They feel that they are well cared for. They know that the storm has a bit in its mouth and that God holds it in and nothing can hurt them. Nothing can happen to them but what God permits. You can picture history as a horse. It's a horse that's moving forward. It's a horse that's running. Sometimes we think that horse is bucking and out of control, and yet there's a rider on the horse, and that rider is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a bit in that horse's mouth, that horse that's history, and that rider is controlling that horse. That rider is controlling history, and that rider loves you. That rider loves me and we will be good. Which brings us to our second point, the love of God. One of the things that I'm doing in my Bible reading this year is I'm looking for every instance in the Bible where I can see the love of God, either in action 
or in terms of what the Bible says. And so you look at Daniel chapter 4, and there are no explicit references to the love of God. And so you might say, oh, this chapter doesn't talk about the love of God. Well, is that really true or not? Um, if you think about it, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar says in verses 1 and 2 that he wants to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me, uh, what is he talking about? He's talking about declaring how God has loved him. Because love is doing what is good for someone else, and he's declaring God's goodness to him. Um, In verses 4 and 5, he says, I was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. That was the love of God to Nebuchadnezzar at that point. Because the Bible says, if God gives us food and God gives us clothing, if he gives us good things, he's loving us, whether whether we're a believer or not. Then he says, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. Uh, that was God's love too. Uh, that God was um, stirring him up in light of the fact that he was at ease. He wasn't concerned about anything. And all of a sudden he has a concern about what's happening. That's God's love as well. Verse 8 says, nobody could under- interpret the dream until Daniel came in to interpret it. That was God's love. He provided a way for Nebuchadnezzar to understand the dream and therefore to understand what was going on in his life. Verse 15 says that the dream said to leave the stump with its roots in the ground, which meant that he wasn't going to be completely destroyed, that the tree, which represented Nebuchadnezzar, was going to be chopped down, but it was going to come back. And that's exactly what God did in his mercy and grace and love. In verse 17, it says that all these things were going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler. When God does things that people might know the truth, that's love. That's the love of God being expressed. Um, In verse 19, when Daniel, it says, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. He sees the dream, he understands the dream, and he's appalled by it. And he says... To Nebuchadnezzar, I wish this dream was going to happen to your enemies and not to you. What is that? Was that just Daniel being sentimental? Was Daniel just trying to preserve his position of power? And what's going on there? Daniel's compassion on Nebuchadnezzar was an expression of God's compassion on Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was a godly man. And God was using Daniel's response to express the heart of God. The Bible tells us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that he would rather that they turn, that they repent and live. That's the heart of God. So it's the love of God through Daniel. And so uh, all these things. Then Daniel, after he shares the, the dream... In verse 27, he says, let me advise you to repent. Let me, what is repentance? Let me advise you to turn to God, break away from your sins, and seek God for mercy and seek to live in obedience to God. And then in verse 29, it says, 12 months later, all this began to be fulfilled, which means for 12 months, God didn't do anything which is, what do, you, what do you call that? You call that giving time to repent. That's what you call love, giving time to repent. And then after all of this, and what it appears is that Nebuchadnezzar um, went from being king to not being king, went from thinking like a man to thinking like a cow. And seven periods of time could mean seven indefinite periods or it could mean something like seven years but it was a long time and after that time his reason came back to him and he was restored to his kingship that was the love of God all of those things are the love of God the love of God is God doing good to people grace is God doing it to people that don't deserve it And that's exactly what we see happening here. So the dream was a loving warning 
that got Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Daniel's love and concern for him was striking, and his call to repentance was an expression of God's love. Um, God was patient and kind, and all of this is to highlight the fact that when we say God rules, we're saying heaven rules, and therefore we're saying love rules. Jonathan Edwards is famous for preaching a sermon called um, Not Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but Heaven is a World of Love. He talked about hell, but he talked about heaven too. And heaven is a world of love. So if heaven rules and heaven is a world of love, then that means love rules. And therefore that means that the fact that God is in charge is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's the best thing there could ever be if indeed God is, as Jonathan Edwards describes him, an infinite fountain of love, an inexhaustible fountain of love, that he naturally and um, overwhelmingly loves. We've been reading in the book Gentle and Lowly how um, the Puritans would often talk about God's judgment as a strange work. But they would talk about his love and mercy and grace as a natural work that just flowed out of him naturally. I won't go into all of that, but it's making the point that the Bible says God is love, not God is judgment. But does God judge? Yes. Will he bring every sin to proper account? Yes, he will. But we need to understand that God is love, and therefore he overflows with love, and therefore we need not be afraid if love rules. If love rules over my life and your life, if love rules over our country, then we need not be afraid. And that's why the biggest or greatest most often uh, seen command in the Bible is, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Love rules, love rules. And the application of the, obviously is that we want to be like that. We should be like that. We need to pray that we would be like that. Um, Matthew 5 and both Matthew 5 and Luke 6 talk about the fact that um, we're to love our enemies Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was an enemy of God. And as I just said, God loved him. Daniel loved him. Daniel had been brought into exile. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And yet God loved him. Daniel loved him. And Jesus taught that we're to love our enemies, that we might be like our father. And he said about that, the Lord Jesus, that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, which means we're to love like the sun functions. We're to love like rain functions. Um, The sun doesn't go around saying, okay, I'm going to shine on this person, but I'm not going to shine on this person. The sun shines on all people. The rain doesn't go around just, you know, raining on individuals or individual properties per se. It rains on all people. And the picture that we see there is that if we're to be like God, then we love not only those who love us, but those who don't love us. And that's the most challenging thing to do. It's easy, in some sense, to love those who love us. In fact, the ungodly love those who love them, however they might define love. But it's truly God's grace when we love like he loves, that we love like the sun, We love like the rain. We love even our enemies, whatever that might look like. And so God rules, God loves, but God brings suffering. And this is one of the most interesting things about this whole story is that um, it's very clear uh, that God is initiating what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Uh, It talks about, um, in verse 17, the decree of the angelic watchers, a command of the holy ones. It says in verse 24, this is the the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. Uh, A voice 
came from heaven in verse 31 and said, okay, sovereignty has been removed from you. It's very clear that God is doing this, bringing this suffering on to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's doing it that uh, he might recognize. It says it over and over again, that you might recognize or until you recognize or after you recognize that God is the Most High who rules over all things. Now think about that. What did God do to this man? Uh, In our day and time, it would be called uh, boanthropy, which relates to the idea of becoming like a bovine, which is a large group that includes cows and bison and buffalo. Uh, You basically... um, have a mental state that causes you to think you're a cow. And evidently, uh, in the history of the world, Nebuchadnezzar isn't the only person who has walked around on all fours, has eaten grass, has mooed like a cow, and has even lived like a cow, at least for a time. But that there have been others, evidently, who have experienced that, and now that, you know, they even have a name for it, in our day and time. And the, the thing about it is you ask yourself, uh, wow, that's pretty extreme. Wouldn't you call that suffering? To go from having a, a, a man's mind, a, a human mind, to having a mind of a cow? That's why Nebuchadnezzar says, when my reason returned to me, when I began to think like a man again instead of like a cow. And that suffering came upon Nebuchadnezzar for a purpose, that he might recognize what he needs to recognize, that he might see what he needs to see, that he might see what isn't to be seen with our physical eyes, but needs to be seen with our spiritual eyes, that God rules and reigns over everything. And the interesting thing about this is he didn't get up and say, I want to tell you how God has mistreated me. That wasn't his testimony. At the end, he says, in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. It was God's purpose to do a work in his life by bringing him suffering that he needed to experience, that he might see what he needed to see, that... The truth might set him free. The reality is all of us need to be treated. And the reality is that God never mistreats any of us. Just recently we've talked about people that go into the hospital or they go see a doctor and they have an issue. And the evaluation by some could be that doctor mistreated them. That doctor actually made things worse for them. That doctor didn't rightly diagnose their situation or give them the right uh, cure, and therefore they were made worse, not better. That they were mistreated, not treated like they should have been by the doctor. But the reality is that God is the great physician. Jesus is the great physician. He knows exactly what our disease is. He knows exactly what our cure needs to be. And he never mistreats us. He may bring suffering into our lives, but it's exactly what we need. And so it's important that we really think about that because we all go through suffering. And we all wonder sometimes if God is mistreating us or if he's treating us like a doctor would to meet our need. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Think about what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, There were seven years of seven periods of time of some kind. God said, I'm measuring it out for you. And this is exactly what's going to happen to you for the next seven periods of time. And it's exactly what you need to learn what you need to learn. And Spurgeon could say, 
the real suffering would be if I became a man who thought like a cow, the real suffering would be if God wasn't in charge of that, if God had not sent it to me, that it was just random chance, that it was hell ruling over me, not heaven ruling over me. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, uh, I'm about to die and you're going to be sad. You're going to have great sorrow. But think about your sorrow like the sorrow of a woman giving a baby or having a baby rather. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's grief in the process of giving birth. But the pain is simply part of the process for joy. And once the pain of giving birth is over, the joy causes you to forget the pain so that you even want to have another baby after that. At least it's not to be compared. You, you would never say, oh, my pain was so great, I, I, I wish I would just could get rid of this child, you know. No, we'd say that, that child was worth everything for whatever I had to go through. And that will be our testimony as well so that we are to receive suffering as joy in the womb. It's joy in the womb. It's not joy fully manifested yet, but it's joy in the womb. So for Nebuchadnezzar, his being given a cow's mind was like joy in the womb. Very quickly, I need to wrap things up here, but there's a really um, good short article by Tim Challies um, called The Squiggly Line of God's Providence. I would encourage you to look it up and read it. I'm not going to read it all here for you. But Tim Challies uh, lost his adult son recently. Just fell down dead. They don't, I don't even know if they've fully understood yet uh, what all uh, went into that. So uh, he knows what it is to experience great loss and not even to understand why, why it happened, what was going on there. He writes this article and he begins by saying, even in our sorest trials, we have the highest confidence, all things work for good. Even in our darkest valleys, we have the brightest light, all things work for good. Even in our lowest moments, our hardest days, our most difficult circumstances, this precious promise blesses us, sustains us, gives us hope. All things work for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose which ultimately goes on to say which means there's nothing that's pointless there's nothing that doesn't have a good purpose in view that doesn't have joy uh, out there somewhere in light of it but he says that it's very difficult for us many times to draw a line between our suffering and what that joy is draw a line between the suffering and what that good is and he would say many times it's probably folly to even try to draw those lines because uh, just like Tolkien said, we don't know all the ends that God has in mind when he does something in our lives. He says there may be a hundred lines leading from one sorrow and a thousand lines leading to one good. So one sorrow and a thousand lines going out. Um, A thousand sorrows going to one good. He says, our deepest grief may flow into a million goods and our greatest triumph may be be downstream of a thousand sorrows. What he's saying is, life is very complex. And God is the great multitasker. And God can bring all kinds of good out of one bad thing And it can bring together all kinds of bad things and create an incredible good. And we are not God. So we cannot even begin to comprehend all the lines that go out and all the lines that converge and how God is up to wonderful things in that. He says, the same faith that saves us is the faith that is meant to sustain us. Even when we are afflicted, even when we are bewildered, As we trust God with our souls, we must trust him with our sorrows. That's the challenge, is to trust God and to believe that one day 
what we see when he reveals to us all that he was doing, we will be breathless. We will be speechless. We will be in eternal awe at what God has done. The last thing is that one of the things that people wrestle with is asking the question, is uh, this an account of Nebuchadnezzar being saved? And the the reality is we don't know for sure. Because if you read the passage closely, at times he says things like, um, Belteshazzar was named according to uh, my God, little g. And yet he praises the most high God. And so Calvin and others would say, no, he learned a lesson, but he wasn't saved. Just like Ahab in one place learns a lesson, humbles himself, but wasn't truly saved. Others uh, would say, yes, they believe that this is a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar being saved toward the end of his life. He probably died a couple years after this experience. Others like Matthew Henry say, uh, charity would say, we hope he was saved. So we don't know for sure, but what can we know? Well, we can know that what it says in Romans 2 is true, where it says in verse 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Which means God is at work in all of our lives to lead us to himself. To repent is to turn to God. God is at work in all of our lives to lead us to God. Now, not everyone turns to God no matter what happens to them. Some turn in a a momentary, superficial fashion. Others, by God's grace and sovereign work in their hearts, turn in a saving way. But all that God is doing is calling people to repentance, calling people to turn from their sin and turn to him for forgiveness, turn from their sin and turn to him for the help and happiness that their hearts long for. And so Psalm 145:17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. So if there's anything you can be sure of about your life and about our country, is that all that is happening is under God's rule and it's right. And all that is happening is under God's rule and it's God's kindness to you. It's God's kindness to me. It's God's love. And we can trust him. And we can pray for grace to turn to him in the ways we need to. Grace to repent where we need to. And we can pray that others would repent and turn to God for forgiveness, turn to God for help, whatever it may be. And and rest in the fact that heaven rules. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. There's so much in this chapter. There's so many things we could have touched on in more depth. And yet I pray that we would receive the truth that you rule, that heaven rules, that love rules, that you are the one that brings suffering into our lives, but you do it for the sake of repentance, for the sake of good, not for our evil, not for our, simply for the sake of suffering, but that we might experience you, that we might find you to be all that you have promised to be for us. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you with our souls. Help us to trust you with our sorrows. And help us to rejoice that heaven rules. Father, please prepare us now for your Lord's Supper celebration. Help us to honor you in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're